morning. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was despised and rejected by men, who was despised and rejected by us, who came and endured that rejection, our rejection, so that we might be your own. And we we thank you for that truth, and we pray, Father, that through our time in the Word this morning, we would be well prepared to worship you this week, well prepared to worship you beyond this week, that our affections would be stirred, that we would love Jesus more, that we'd be more faithful to you, that both the cross and the manger in our minds would be symbols of what Jesus came to endure, that we might spend eternity with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. As you're finding your place there, let us stand together. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You may be seated. This morning, we're, we're, we're not going to be studying this whole passage as, as we typically would, but rather, we're going to identify a theme in this passage, a theme which is present throughout the Scriptures. We're going to look at that theme throughout the Scriptures and consider how that theme informs our salvation and how it should inform our lives And so I'd like for you to just listen for a while. You're free, of course, to take notes, write down whatever you'd like. But toward the end, we will will go to several passages in the Bible and tie some things together. But that theme has already been read for us this morning. It's It's a theme that is perhaps nowhere more clearly expressed for us than in the words of Isaiah 53, 3, which reads, He was despised and rejected by men. The Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. We find the first emblem, that is the first symbol of that rejection in this text in Luke chapter 2. So look with me again at at verse 7. It reads, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. He was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, because there was no place for them in the inn. That is puzzling. There there would have been no holiday inn of of Bethlehem, so we, we, we need to make sure that we understand this whole situation rightly. A small town like Bethlehem likely didn't have anything like an inn. There, there, there might have been something like a community structure for people in caravans to stop and lodge themselves, but nothing like an inn where you would pay somebody for a room. But in, in most small towns like Bethlehem, the only hospitality that there was to find was in people opening their homes to one another. That likely was the situation here, which is why the most literal way to translate what we find here in Luke 2.7 is there was no place for them in a guest room. There was no place for them in a guest room. And that lack of hospitality found by Jesus and His parents on that first night is shocking in light of ancient Near Eastern custom. It was the norm to offer hospitality to travelers. It would be unthinkable not to. We could find numerous examples of that kind of hospitality being shown to travelers throughout the Old Testament. We think of examples in Genesis 18 and 19, Genesis 24, Exodus 2, Job in Job 31-32 as he's defending himself against a charge of sin. One of the ways that he, he demonstrates that he's, he's a good guy is he's opened his home to travelers. Even in Judges 19, that sordid tale of of a town so evil that a mob sexually assaulted a woman to death, even in that town, it was unthinkable to let travelers sleep outside. This kind of thing just didn't happen. 
And that's why we can scan down to verse 12, look down to verse 12, where the angel tells the shepherds about Jesus, and that the angel is able to say, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. He didn't have to say which baby lying in a manger. There would only be one. This, this kind of thing didn't happen. A baby sleeping outside. There likely was, was no malice behind this. It, it was definitely odd that, that in the entire town there's not a homeowner making, making space for this young family, this baby, and not, not a traveler who had found a place to stay looking at this this couple with their baby and saying, look, I know I've, I've found room. You can have my space. It is odd that that, that didn't happen anywhere, that, that the whole town said there is no room, but we ought not see necessarily malice in any of that because they didn't know who this was. But Jesus sleeping outside because there was no place for Him, that whole scene that is so familiar to us, that nativity scene, many of us have nativity scenes in our homes, it's so familiar to us, it is emblematic, that is, it is symbolic of the entire incarnation, the entire time of Jesus taking on human flesh, living on this earth in order to redeem us. The nativity scene is emblematic of the entire incarnation. See, it is not just that there was no room in the end, there also was no room in the incarnation. That manger scene just forecast Jesus' whole life. Even a cursory reading of the gospel shows that Jesus' life on earth was largely one of rejection. There is no room for you. That is what Jesus was met with from the very beginning. Now, this, this, this scene in Luke 2, in which we, we ought not read malice into this scene, the malice materialized very quickly. And all we have to do is, is turn to Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, Herod hears about Jesus being born, and, and the text tells us that he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Herod was so determined to destroy Jesus that he engaged in an overkill operation so massive that it was prophesied in Jeremiah. Herod hated Jesus so much that he was willing to kill every young boy in Bethlehem on the off chance that Jesus might be there. Jesus was in such danger that he couldn't even be in the country. An angel told Joseph, you have to take him to Egypt. See, there, there's, no, there's no room for Jesus in Israel as a toddler. When it was safe to come back, when Herod was dead, it was safe to come back, and Joseph brought Jesus back to, to Nazareth where he grew up. Nazareth became his, his hometown. But when Jesus began his public ministry, there was no room for him there either because we, we find he was rejected even in his hometown. In Matthew 13, 57, upon his rejection there by his, his, his closest people, we find Jesus saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. In, in a parallel passage in Luke 4, verses 15 and following, we find those same people, the people of his hometown, trying to kill him by throwing him off of a cliff. There's no place for him, no room in Nazareth. Eventually, there was no room for him in his own family. Mark chapter 3, verse 21 tells us that his family, his, his mother and brothers, remember, his, his mother, remember the same mother in, in early chapters of Luke, Mary, Mary and Jesus' brothers, 
They, in Mark chapter 3, were seeking to silence Him because they thought He was out of His mind. And in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, He was so opposed by His brothers that His brothers tried to trick Him into going to Jerusalem because they knew that in Jerusalem, people were trying to kill Him. No room for Him. No room for Him even in His own family. Others had no room for Jesus just because he, he, he upset their, their power structure. That was the case with the Jewish leadership. They planned to kill him from very early on. He started healing people on the Sabbath. And, and that, that implicitly challenged their status as the grand poobahs of the law. And so that they, they decided, we've got to knock this guy off. That's, that's Matthew chapter 12. There's no room for him. Now, certainly, as we, as we read the Gospels, certainly people were drawn to Jesus. And we, we've noted that numerous times over the years. People were drawn to Jesus. They were drawn to Him for healing, for, for food, for, for whatever. But here's, here's the key to understanding that in light of all of this rejection. The clearer it became who Jesus was, the kind of Savior He was, the more it was the case that there was no room for him. In other words, the more clearly he was known, the more openly he was rejected. And a great example of this is in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Of course, everybody's thrilled about this. They're so thrilled that they follow him across the Sea of Galilee overnight to get more from him, more healing, more food. And so Jesus takes that opportunity to explain to them what he's really all about. He says to them, look, don't, don't, Work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And he he explains to them, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven. And anyone who eats of that bread will never die. Well, there's no room for that kind of talk. They wanted the food. They did not want Jesus. And that's why John records there in John 6, 66, that after this, many of his disciples turned back and were no longer walking with him. And that verse even is something of an understatement because at the end of that chapter, out of all the many thousands of people who were there, there were 12 people left. 12, just the disciples. Here's an even more striking example. Even John the Baptist, even John the Baptist wasn't sure. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, upon hearing a report of everything that Jesus had been doing, Jesus, He's he's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, upon hearing an accurate report of what Jesus is all about, John sends messengers to Jesus to ask one question. Are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for someone else? You see, there are people like John who believed that Jesus really was the Messiah. And, 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 and we can see that all the way back in, in Luke. Luke chapter 1 where Zechariah said of him, He will save us from our enemies and from those who hate us. But in their mind, they're thinking Rome. He's going to save us from our earthly enemies. But, 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 but when they learn what he's really all about, that he's not a military Messiah He is not going to overthrow Rome. Then there's no room. We want somebody else. And you know, it's not that that Jesus was oblivious to this. He he understood the danger. And, And this is why we find Jesus 
keeping his identity something of a secret until the appropriate time. And this is perhaps the most clear in Mark. In Mark, over and over, he tells people, he tells demons not to tell anybody who he is. Why? Because Jesus knew that, that when they understood, I'm the Son of God, then it'll be on in earnest, they'll kill me. And he did not want to die before the Father's perfect time. So, we find a, a, a perfect summary of the Lord's reception in the incarnation in John 1.11. With these words, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. He was despised and rejected by men. The manger, the manger is just an emblem of things to come. If we're familiar with all of the Bible, including the Old Testament, we, we know, we should know that the, the manger also is, is an emblem of things past. There was no room in the end. There was no room in the incarnation. There also had been no room in the pre-incarnation. God had always been rejected by man. We, we go back to the Genesis chapter 2, the very, I'm sorry, Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning of the Bible. God created all things. God created man and placed him in the garden to tend it as his representative. And he has this very special relationship with God. He's with God. God is with him. God had made a special place for man with him. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam rejected God. And sin separated man from God. But we find in Genesis 3 this unbelievably gracious disposition of God to correct that problem. In Genesis 3.15, God makes something of a cryptic promise. I will fix this. I will send a seed of the woman to fix this. And in the rest of the Old Testament, we find two things over and over. We find God's determination to keep that promise, and we find man's determination to continue rejecting God. So think about the book of Exodus. God shows His determination to keep that promise. He saves the people from Egypt. And and while He's giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle, that is, while He's giving Moses a provision for him to be with his people. While he's doing that, they're making other gods. Essentially saying to God, there's no room for you with us. We don't want Yahweh. And immediately after that, God forgives them. God moves toward them. God gives them manna to eat. Gives them manna. And what do they do? They turn in their hearts back toward Egypt because they want meat. God moves toward them, they reject Him. He moves toward them, they reject Him. There's a cycle of this kind of thing in the book of Judges. happens over and over and over. God saves His people, they reject Him. He saves them, they reject Him. We could jump forward to the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 10. The people say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations. And God took that as a rejection of Himself. He said in in 1 Samuel 10, 19, today you have rejected your God. You've rejected God. Me as being king over you. And that song, it just continues for the rest of the Old Testament. The references are are, are far too many to, to mention this morning. And listen to this. Even upon the threat of expulsion from the promised land, 
the people continue to reject God. And so we read throughout the book of, of Kings, throughout the book of Chronicles, and throughout all of the prophets, we, we read these words over and over. They have forsaken me. They have forsaken me. And so in, in Luke chapter 2, we, we may think that the manger is this great counterpoint to the grandeur of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And, and in a sense of what Jesus deserved, certainly it was. But in the sense of Yahweh's reception, or maybe more appropriately, His rejection in the hearts of His own people in the Old Testament, the manger was perhaps the most appropriate place for Christ to spend His first night in human flesh. Just like there had been no place for Yahweh in the minds and hearts of His people all the way back to Genesis 3, there was no place for the baby king. And you know, even with all of that in the Old Testament, the people just rejecting God, rejecting God, rejecting God, the most striking thing about the Old Testament isn't that. The most striking thing about the Old Testament is is Yahweh's unwavering commitment to pursue them. He just keeps pursuing them graciously and coming after them and coming after them and coming after them. And as we think about that, we want to think about it rightly. That is, we want to understand the character of God appropriately. We do not have in the Creator God, we do not have in the pre-incarnate or incarnate Christ a, a needy deity who creates because He just so desperately needs friends. So, Yahweh in the Old Testament pursuing His people, He's not like the nerdy kid at the birthday party who just wants people to pay attention to Him. That is not what's happening at all, but rather, He pursues man because without Him, man is lacking something. God created man to flourish only in fellowship with Him. But the great problem is that, just as we see in Genesis 3, when man rejects God, that is when man says to God, there's no room for you with me, well, then there's no place for man with God. Remember that Adam was, Adam was banished from the garden. Man rejects God at his own peril, and that includes all of us. All of us, by virtue of the fact that we're descended from Adam, all of us have rejected God. All of us have said, essentially, there is no room for you with me, God. And that means that there is, there is from the moment we are conceived, there is no room for us with God. Huge problem. So it is not out of God's need that He pursues man, but it is out of compassion and generosity that God pursues man. And that's what the incarnation was about. God sent His Son to pursue man. And His plan was that through one final rejection, through one final rejection in the incarnation, He would make His place with man and He would make a place for man with him. Now, what was that final rejection? What was that final rejection? Was it the rejection of his people? You know, we've seen that Jesus was rejected constantly in his earthly life. We might think that things things will be different with the disciples. I mean, there's there's closest friends. They they knew who he was. Peter Peter said in in John chapter six, after all the thousands had left, and Jesus said to the twelve, "Do you want to go away too?" Peter said, "Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life." And it seemed that Peter got it. It seemed, and yet, all all his closest friends rejected him. Because these guys, Peter, John, James, all the rest, 
they misunderstood who Jesus was too. They, they did not completely get it. And that, that's clear from, from numerous exchanges that Jesus had with them. One, one great example is in Mark chapter 10. James and John, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, could we sit on your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, you have no clue what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is indicating a truth that's later later written in Acts 14.22. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. See, Jesus was bringing a different kind of kingdom than they were expecting. They thought they were getting in on the ground floor of an earthly kingdom. An earthly kingdom. Jesus was going to set them free from the Romans and they were going to be high up in the hierarchy of that new kingdom. But when it turned out that this kingdom would be something other than what they had anticipated, they were gone. All abandoned him. Peter denied even knowing him three times. Judas betrayed him. and The, the twelve, this inner circle, said to Jesus, no room. There's no room for this. But that, that abandonment by his closest friends, was that the final rejection? It was not. It was not. What was? To get to that final rejection, we really need to, to get to the heart of the point of all of, all of this. Th- think about yourself. Put, put yourself in Jesus' shoes. How would you have responded to all of this rejection? It doesn't take long for me to come up with an answer to that question. If it was, if it was, if it was me who had been scorned and betrayed and rejected, I would say, look, if, if this is the reception I'm going to get, you can all go fly a kite. I'll go back to heaven. And you can all go to perdition. That, that's what I would have said. But, but Jesus was not all, at all surprised by, by this treatment. This was exactly what he signed up for. Jesus understood that this universal disposition to reject him was precisely what he came to save us from. Because that's what sin is. Sin says to God, I'm in charge, there's no room for you. For for Jesus, all that rejection, all the rejection that, that he experienced, That was not an obstacle to His mission, but rather it was the reason for His mission. Our hearts needed to be changed and our guilt had to be removed. And He was the only one who could do that. So He did not come expecting accolades or a warm reception. Jesus knew Isaiah 53. He came expecting to be despised and rejected. The whole point was fine with Him. Because, as he said himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And to that end, he embraced our rejection. And I want you to think this morning with me about the extent to which he embraced our rejection. He even embraced the blame for it. He took the guilt for our rejection of him upon His shoulders on the cross. His entire lifetime of being despised and rejected 
blasphemed by word and and deed. He, He didn't just overlook all of that to get to the cross, but rather he took it as his own burden to bear on the cross. So your sin, all of your rejection of him... He, he not only forgives that sin that you've committed against Him, but He bears the guilt of it. He takes the punishment for it in your stead. Has anybody else ever loved you like that? No, no nobody ever could. And it is that guilt. That guilt for our rejection upon His shoulders that led to the final rejection that He would suffer. For a time, he would be rejected even by the Father. He who knew no sin became sin. Offensive to the Father. The object of God's wrath. And we, we can hear his anguish in Psalm 13.1. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We can hear his voice in in Psalm 22, which he quoted on, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you, some of you have felt the rejection, the betrayal of, of, of a really close friend or a really close family member. I want you to think just briefly about that. Not to drudge up bitterness, but, but rather I want you to think about where you found comfort in that, minute, in that moment when you were rejected by that close friend, that close family member. Who did you go to? You went to God, right? And in the, the terrible depth of that pain, you found a depth of comfort in the Lord, didn't you? No one has ever been as alone as Jesus on the cross. In those hours, He had no one. There was no room for Him. There was no room in the inn. No room in the incarnation. No room in the pre-incarnation. And while on the cross, there wasn't even room with the Father. Now, what was Jesus accomplishing in all of this? Let's turn over to John 14 now. John 14. Jesus was enduring no room because He was making room. He was making room. John 14 is from the upper room discourse. Jesus is talking to His disciples on the night before His passion. John 14.1, He begins, he, He says to them, He says to us, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus was making room in the Father's house for us. Removing our guilt so that we could be forgiven and reconciled and adopted by God. That we might be with God. He was making room for us. Now turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 
We find that Jesus is the great fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, all the Old Testament institutions and sacrifices. And this great passage in in Hebrews 10 shows in, in glorious detail what Jesus was accomplishing when He suffered all alone. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what, what was Jesus accomplishing on the cross? As His blood was being shed, He was accomplishing the complete, total, and forever forgiveness for our sins so that what? Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with, true, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, for with our hearts sprinkled clean from a, an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. See what Jesus is doing. Because of the shedding of His blood, now God the Father in the inner chamber of the heavenly tabernacle, not an earthly tabernacle, not merely earthly, but the heavenly tabernacle, God the Father in that inner chamber says to us, welcome, come in, there is room for you because of what Jesus has done. Isn't that amazing? It's a miracle. You see there in verse 22, Hebrews 10.22, the idea of our hearts being sprinkled clean. That is, that is a connection to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, so, so if you would turn over there. Our hearts sprinkled clean. That depicts our, our guilt being removed. And by that, as the author of Hebrews has, has, has already said, by that, room was made for us with God. We can approach God. Ezekiel 36 indicates that something else also was was accomplished by our hearts being sprinkled clean. Ezekiel 36, beginning verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, Jesus, by by sprinkling our hearts, He he not only made room for us with God, but He made room for God in us. Not just with us, but in us. Jesus is very clear about this with us on, on the night just before He went to the cross in, in John fourteen sixteen, He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another Helper. You know Him. He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus endured a life and death of rejection. 
rejection not just by man, but also by God, that upon God's acceptance of His sacrifice on our behalf, which was signaled by His being raised from the dead, He might make room for us with Him and Him in us. But even that isn't, isn't the, the, the full scope of what Christ has accomplished in this regard. Because the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, the New Testament characterizes that as a down payment on something even better. The Holy Spirit living inside of us is a down payment on something else. If you're taking notes, you might write down Revelation 21, verses 1-3. through I'll read it to you now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and He Himself will be with them as their God." So Jesus, He makes room for us with God. He makes room for God in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And when He returns again, He will make room for God with us forever. He will spend eternity God with us, us with God. See, the manger, it it sits alongside the cross as symbols of what Christ came to endure to bring many sons to glory. He endured no room that He might make room for us. So, what ought we to do with these things? The the, the most important thing to consider is your own disposition toward Christ today. As I mentioned earlier, all of us, from our conception, we have hearts that reject the Lord Jesus. So the thing to consider this morning is, Is that still your disposition toward the Lord? Have you ever repented of your sin? Have you ever rejected your sin and turned away from your rejection of God and surrendered to Christ, trusting in Him alone to save you and to grant you room with God? If not, today is the day. Today is the day. Repent and trust in Jesus. If you persist in rejecting Him, when you die, which could be today, don't kid yourself, when you die, it will be too late. There will be no room for you with Christ for eternity. There will be no room for you. Second Thessalonians 1.9 teaches that you will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. It's what we all deserve, but by His grace, by His sacrifice, He has made room for us. Do not wait. Acknowledge His rightful place as Lord of your life and your only hope for salvation. If you have any questions about that, please ask somebody before you leave this place. There are people sitting all around you who who would love to talk to you. The elders would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. Just don't leave here this morning. That issue not dealt with. Now for those of us who who have trusted Christ and we know that we have a place with the Lord Jesus, what should we do with these things? First, let us adore Him. 
let us adore Him. Let's celebrate the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ as a lifestyle. And let us demonstrate to the world that that is the appropriate way to mark Christmas. That is, for Christ to be central. What, what an ironic insult would it be for us as Christians to say to Jesus all over again at this time of, of, of the year, by our lack of attention to Him, by our lack of worship, there is no room for you. Let's not do that. Jesus is Christmas. So let us adore Him. A second thing that we should do in response to these things, let's join Him outside the camp. Let's join Him outside the camp. That's from Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read those to you now. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. See, Those associated with Jesus will have no room. We will find no room in this world. That was true on the first night in Bethlehem. If we're paying close attention to the language of Luke 2.7, we find that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room for them. Again, that, that scene is emblematic of the future. Those attached to Jesus will find no room. Jesus said in Matthew 10.22, You will be hated by all for My name's sake. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let us then so embrace the Lord Jesus that we're well prepared to be treated the way that He was treated. That is, let us be well prepared to find no room in this world for for us to be despised and rejected. But more importantly, let, let us be prepared to respond as He did. With compassion and patience, kindness and love. Not seeing people's rejection of us as an obstacle to our mission but as the very reason for our mission. You know what happens when we do that? When, when we are rejected people because of our association with Christ, we're treated poorly because of the gospel that we proclaim, and we respond as Jesus did, with compassion and love and patience. When we do that, we put flesh on the gospel that we proclaim. Look with me again at Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It, it was an emblematic continuation of God's reception among men in the past. It was an emblematic first step in Christ's mission to make room. Make room for us with God and room for God 
in and with us. So let us adore him and let us join him outside the camp. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for these truths. We thank you for loving us as you have in spite of us, loving us who have have despised and rejected you from the very beginning. Thank you for saving us through Jesus. And we, we pray, Father, that this Jesus whom we despised and rejected every day more and more become it would become the case that he would be loved and worshipped. The despised and rejected in our hearts would become the loved and worshipped in our hearts. Lord, let that become the, the song of our lives. We can't help but think of him and speak of him and love him. Father, move us to adore him, not just in the coming week, as we celebrate Christmas, but with our lives every day of the year. Father, please grant us the privilege and joy of joining Him outside the camp, embracing the rejection that we experience as a result of our association with Him. And Father, please grant us the grace to respond as He did, to be compassionate and patient and loving so that people will see Him in us and believe. And join us as those who adore him. We ask these things in his name. Amen.